Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, is there a military solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And I'm joined now by the author of one of the pieces in this issue, Corey Shockey, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and, of course, a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Corey, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Now, let's start with a, a conceptual point and one that you make early on in your piece at Strategica about this issue's prompt. The prompt being, is there a military solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Now, one of the at least superficial appeals of, of talking about military solutions is that they seem to have a certain economy to them, right? By which I mean they, they seem like they strip out a lot of the ambiguity. In military terms, you either win or, or you lose. But you say that's an oversimplification, that almost every war really ends with some sort of political solution. Explain what you mean by that. I love the way you set up that question. And yes, I mean any war that doesn't end with the extermination of one side or the other ends – because you make a choice about a political solution. And so even in the extreme cases, the United States dropping the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II, wars are contests of political will, and one side either fights until they exist no more, or they concede the political objectives of the other side. And I think sometimes in a desire for an easier way than the messy politics of things. We look for military solutions, and wars don't actually end in military solutions. They end in political solutions. That military force makes one side or the other finally be willing to accept. So let's talk about some of the political solutions that have been tried. We're in a much different place than we were a decade ago when the the phrase du jour at that point with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was land for peace, and we had the Israelis pulling out of Gaza. You don't hear land for peace much anymore. So was the situation in Gaza, was that just a matter of applying that approach at at the wrong time or in the wrong way, or is land for peace conceptually flawed? Is it just a framework that cannot work in this conflict? I think land for peace is still the right solution, and I believe the majority of Israelis think that too. The problem has been that in 2005, when Israel uh, departed from the West Bank and Gaza, they not only removed their military, they removed the Israeli settlements that were in those areas and handed Gaza and the West Bank back to over to Palestinians. The expectation on the part of Israelis was that they were trading land for peace. And it didn't result in peace. It resulted into renewed rocket attacks into Israel from those areas. And I think that collapsed confidence on the Israeli side that it was a workable proposition. But I don't see other solutions that actually have any greater prospect. The real problem is the continuing Palestinian support for violence that's at least occurring in their midst by Hamas. 
And how do you – I realize this is an extremely uh, difficult question and one that if you had an immediate answer to, you probably would not be sitting here talking to us. How, how, <laughs> how, how, do, you, how do you combat that? I mean obviously public policy is not the, <clears throat> not the silver bullet there. But that seems that it puts a real difficulty on this entire situation in that you are not necessarily talking about policy levers to push. You're talking about a deep-seated sort of cultural problem, a social issue. Uh, what dynamics do you think could, could work to change that or at least to mitigate it? Boy, that's such a hard and such an important question. You know, the, the psychology of societies that believe only violence can achieve their aims is true in some societies, but I don't actually think it's true in the case of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There, I think the better analogy is actually the choice by black Americans during the civil rights movement in the United States, which was that their fundamental challenge was to change the attitude of white America, in essence, to, to call us into living our political and social creed. And by choosing nonviolence, Martin Luther King and the other leaders of the civil rights movement actually did change white attitudes. That they captured the moral high ground of the argument. And the choice by Palestinians to indulge the, the fantasy of revenge for Israeli wrongs actually hardens Israeli hearts. It doesn't, it doesn't change that social and political dynamic. So while I am sympathetic to Palestinian grievances, they are making a set of choices that worsen their situation and not better it. And I think the challenge for all of us is to help Palestinians understand that and to help them make a set of choices as a society that that deal with their grievances in more constructive ways. So we had this period over the summer where you had significant fighting in the region again. It starts to feel like an endless cycle sometimes. Like you're just going to alternate between these cycles of of well, hot really war, does. hot war and sort of cold peace, even that may be a stretch in in perpetuity. Is is there anything now in the aftermath of that violence this summer that makes you think that the dynamic could move in a different direction, or are we likely to be having this same conversation again 18 months from now? I actually do think there are two interesting developments that, that potentially change the underlying currents. The first is Palestinian exasperation with Hamas, uh, Hamas's willingness to take Palestinian civilian casualties in the course of the war. So hiding uh, weapons close to UN schools and hospitals and on apartment building rooftops. Um, and uh, so that's, that is one thing. I do think Palestinians themselves are noticing a difference between Israeli military tactics, which make every effort to minimize civilian casualties, and, and Hamas tactics, which accept them as a matter of course. And that's an important difference that I hadn't at, at least heard before in Palestinian discussions. And the second change, it doesn't, it's not uh, immediately new, but it's new since about 2006, which is that was the first time that Arab states criticized Hamas for its tactics. 
when Hamas wasn't willing to accept the land for peace deal in 2006 and started launching rocket attacks into Israel. That was the first time, to my knowledge, that Saudi Arabia, that the United Arab Emirates, that others criticized the choices that of violence coming from Palestine. That they saw that this was a good deal for Palestinians and believed Palestinians should take it. And when Palestinians did not, they got criticism from Arab states who saw what what this was going to do to Israeli confidence in the ultimate bargain. Those two things, I do think, give us something to build on. I want to stay on that issue for a moment because in your piece for Strategica, you talk about the prospect of Arab states acting as intermediaries in the conflict. You specifically mention Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Egypt as states that could conceivably take up some of the security responsibilities so that you can then to some extent sort of decouple the security issue from the inherent tensions between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And, and you note there that there are some issues where those states have common interests with Israel. Um, but let me give me the – I think the easily – you probably anticipated the, the counterargument that people always make to this, right? That they're, they're not really – these states aren't really that interested in solving the conflict, that it's really an easy scapegoat for those Jews to keep from addressing their own radicalism and that the last thing they'd want to do, uh, especially at a time when many countries in the region are trying to ward off the threat from Islamists, is take on a role where they could be perceived to be an accessory to Islam. Israel. So, um, how much of a of a burden do you think that those objections, the argument, and if there are burdens, do you think that they can be overcome? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, let me take the two separate challenges that you raised separately, because I think they're both important, but they they require different solution sets. The first one, which is the Arab states use. Palestine as a scapegoat for not solving their own internal problems. I think the case, I think that is true in the case of several Arab states, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates in particular. I believe it's less true of Jordan. Jordan took an enormous tide of Palestinian refugees over the course of the last generation and a half and has incorporated them into their politics. But honestly hope that there is a Palestinian solution that will draw Palestinians back home. And so I listen with more care to Jordan's concerns about this because I think they they have actually borne a significant domestic burden and they are not trying to externalize their unwillingness to solve domestic problems. Uh, and uh, in the case of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and, and some other Arab states. I do think it's a cheap way for them to show Arab solidarity and to strengthen themselves against an Islamist challenge at home and the challenges posed by reformers who want greater political and social rights at home. But that doesn't mean we can't use that to advantage. And I so like Peter Berkowitz's terrific suggestion for actually challenging those countries that say that this is an important problem to help solve it. Um, the second challenge that you raise, that is of delegitimization of these countries on the Islamist flank, that does get harder with the, with the rise of the Islamist state. You know, when the Iranian Revolution occurred in 1979, 
One of the reasons that Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries were so unsettled by it was that the Iranians did raise this challenge of the legitimacy of Saudi Arabia overseeing Islam's holiest sites and really kind of calling them out as not truly Muslim. And the Islamic State poses that same kind of challenge. I think you see states like Saudi Arabia reacting to it by increasing the severity of, of Islamic, Islamic law that they practice in their societies. The number of beheadings in Saudi Arabia has gone way up uh, in correlation with, the, with what they perceive as the popularity of the Islamic State. So it's, it makes it harder to implement Peter's solution. It makes it harder for them to recognize the State of Israel. It makes it harder for them to openly work in conjunction with them. But I actually think the, the answer to that, just as the answer to the challenges of democracy is more and richer and deeper democracy, the challenges to the questions of legitimation are for these governments to make the argument that they actually are living their faith by helping Palestinians find a just solution and a stable solution to the, the long and bitter um, conflict in Palestine. They need to make that case, and they need to win the argument with their own public. That's the right way to do it. So, final question, the American role here. Uh, on the policy side, uh, what's the best way for the United States to approach this relative to where we currently are? Do we need to get more engaged? Do we need to pull back a little, maybe practice some benign neglect? What would your counsel be? Well, um, my sense is that American administrations that have put the greatest shoulder to the wheel on this uh, – the Carter administration getting the Camp David Accords, which is, of course, the great breakthrough victory in the conflict. The Clinton administration, which tried so hard uh, to get an agreement and was unable to. The Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, the second term that worked so hard on this. And also, you know, John Kerry's uh, tireless efforts to try and bring this about. What I conclude from all of those efforts is two obvious points. The first is that we can help, but we cannot produce a solution to this problem. The solution to this problem lies with the parties to the conflict. And the second thing I conclude from all that is that many good policy solutions have been on offer, and they, for one reason or another, have not been taken up by the parties to the conflict. So we ought to engage this with consistent effort and attention, but with the humility that we can't solve this problem. But that by engaging in a serious way, we help the parties to the conflict, and we also help countries like Jordan, who really need a solution to this problem and have been doing all of the right things uh, in trying to create a positive environment for solution to the problem. Uh, the Ultimately, this problem isn't going to get solved until Palestinians create a vibrant, functioning state of Palestine. And that requires a lot of spade work in, in the Palestinian society to accept a good solution. That's not all that they want, but that allows them to get on with the business 
of raising their children and getting rich and governing themselves. And none of us can do that for them. All right. Our guest has been Corey Shockey, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and, of course, a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read her piece and those by other members of the group by visiting Strategica at Hoover forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Corey, thanks for being with us. It's been a pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.